No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me this week on the program is nobody. Uh, this week I am taking a, a hard left from the the nitty-gritty that we were talking about with funerals last week and diving into something a little more esoteric, uh, namely that is the idea of consciousness and does it persist after death. And before I get to all of that, I want to first up front just say, holy cow, I am so sorry about last week. I literally don't know what happened. Um, No, not true. I think there was a problem with my laptop uh, defaulting to... I the built-in microphone that can't even be like i don't think that's what happened but that's the best that i can theorize based on what's going on uh straight up my laptop is dying on me i need to take it in to get it repaired so i'm actually recording this on my better half's wonderful pristine shiny brand new laptop that she's been uh using for the last several months that she's gracious enough to um (laughs) let me fill up with bad podcast ideas in the meantime so um I'm going to get my, my my laptop sorted and dealt with, but hopefully the audio this week is much more in line with what we've done in the past because that was so deflating last week to get done recording that and have it all done and then realize, oh, it sounds terrible. Crap. Okay. Um, I honestly, I thought about deleting it and just starting back over and like transcribing and trying to fix it, but I was just, I was happy with everything that I had done on record, but just audio quality was not there so i am so sorry for that so uh thank you to anybody that pushed through and listened to that i was very happy with that episode just the audio was so subpar so my apologies for that but um like i said this week i'm getting away from the uh the 10 part funeral series that i did uh and look at something a little more out there and a little more esoteric and like i said this is going to be looking at consciousness after death and uh, i'm thinking based on what i've looked at so far this is also going to have to be a multi-part thing so I don't know if this is going to be as strictly linear um, based on, you know, what the subject matter entails because it's going to be, we're quickly getting out into the weeds with this here. But, um, well, we'll see as we get into it. Uh, today is the day before Thanksgiving in uh, America. And as I said last week, it's, you know, it is not without its complications, notably that, you um, especially being a white person in uh in modern america you know i um see i'm already seizing up and not dealing with it well uh basically the idea of how we got here as morons and didn't um plan for the fact that hey you know winter is coming and uh we were going to starve to death and the native people here were kind enough and gracious enough to help us not die and then we thank them by Uh, destroying their culture and people and taking their land without getting up on my soapbox for a bit i it's you know the complicated nature of it is not lost on me but it's if nothing else a good opportunity to be grateful and as a reminder of what we have in our lives and what we're thankful for um as always i'm thankful for uh my wonderful family and my good health and the ability to do this uh, free of constraint. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that, but I am not, uh, dismissing the notion that, um, we are standing on the shoulders of giants and we would not be here were it not for the systematic, uh, 
and uh, government-sanctioned um, suppression of an entire indigenous people. So that being said, we just had our first major snowstorm here last night in Minnesota. Overnight, I was up at 5 in the morning shoveling my driveway because I'm a dum-dum and I still haven't bought a snowblower. Uh, that actually stems more from being cheap, frankly. My uh, better half several years ago said, look, <laughs> as a Christmas present, just buy one, okay? Here, I would like you to not have a heart attack. Please buy one. And I've always said, well, it's good exercise, and I don't really mind so much. And at 36 years old this morning, <laughs> I was out there <laughs> shoveling the snow thinking, you know, this is probably the breaking point. I need to be more... Um, I need to be mindful of the fact that I will not be a spring chicken forever and that this is physically demanding and this is just stupid at this point. I need to just buy one. Um, Bite the bullet. Funds are allocated for it. Just take the plunge. So um, that said, I can certainly see from the depths of winter last year where I started this podcast, it's a reminder of, oh, oh, I'm going to get snowed in here. This is why I'm talking on a microphone by myself for hours because uh, you, you go a little stir-crazy. So here comes winter roaring back again. It's a beautiful, strange thing. I do enjoy winter despite the lack of sunlight for nine months of the year here, um, but the, you know, <laughs> shoveling the snow leaves something to be desired. So at the risk of, uh, you know, digging myself any deeper into a hole of uh, self flagellation here. I'll just cut right to it and let's talk about consciousness after death. All right, so let's dive in. Like I said, this is not, uh, this is a hard swing away from uh, looking at the, the physical practicality of what do you do with a dead body, um, not from a crime scene standpoint, but from a, like, what do we as a species do with our dead? This is more of a look at what happens to the thing inside, and even that statement is going to be subject to scrutiny. Um, This is looking at consciousness after death. Is it, is it, question mark, there you go, is it, are we conscious after death? What happens? Um, This is going to be difficult to kind of wade into, and frankly, I'm excited to just get into real uncertain, murky territory. I've realized that about myself in recent years that I'm quite uncomfortable with ambiguity, or rather, I'm I'm not uncomfortable wading through uncertainty. That's um, an interesting place to exist within and to find uh, some peace in there. Really, if you're able to function in uncertainty, functioning within certainty is much more navigable, I think. Well, anyway, um, my notes are normally pretty linear when I want to talk about a subject on the podcast here. So what I'll do is I'll do some research and do some reading and um, go down a wormhole of what it is I want to look into, um, you know, make notes as I'm going along and make points, highlights of what I want to talk about and kind of transition from one idea to another and really follow logically like step A to step B of like what the nuts and bolts were of cremation or um, what happens if you can't afford a funeral. You know, it's very pragmatic. If A, then B. If B, then C. If C, then D. Um, That's my philosophy background. Um, I was a philosophy major in college, and any of my professors, I am very sorry for not better representing the fields. That's a whole separate 
can of worms. Uh, maybe I'll see if I can <laughs> get... Oh, God, that would be fun and uh, mixed emotion to be able to get some of my philosophy professors on here, um, assuming they would ever deign to do so. Anyway, point is, um, looking at my notes for this, it's such an unwieldy, unusual, amorphous subject matter that there, <laughs> there's really no logic to it. There's no uh, flow to them other than just what I happened to be reading and diving into at the time. So this is going to be kind of a kind of a digging in of, well, how do we get there and what do we do? Um, so stick with me. You know, if we can figure this out, I'm going to say God bless you, but I don't want to make any presuppositions about God. Uh, thank you for being patient and helping me navigate this. So, consciousness in and of itself is a difficult thing to wrap our heads around because, frankly, we are assuming our heads are wrapped around it already, but even that is an assumption based on empirical evidence, I guess. The issue here is that everybody's conscious experience is subjective, and we are not all necessarily experiencing the same thing. By and large, yes, we are. We are all homo sapiens with uh, very similar physical makeup in our brains. Certainly there's idiosyncrasies for the individual. However, the fact that Everybody is unique, and everybody has their own neuroidiosyncrasies. Um, there are everybody's got different hardwiring slightly. Everybody's got different neurochemical pathways. Everybody's got a different experience growing up. You know, nature versus nurture. We've got this whole huge thing that we have to take into account for. That by and large, we are mostly the same question mark sure okay so if we can assume that let's say that we're all human having a human conscious experience now when it comes to whether or not that's a universal thing for living things is another difficult matter to get into and one of the things i always cite for my philosophy classes in college was what is it like for a bat to be a bat you know is this experience of consciousness and aliveness is this unique to humanity or does this happen in other animals does this you know does it happen for elephants and dolphins does it happen for bugs does it happen for cats and dogs i have been fascinated as long as i can remember having approached the subject i have looked at this not from a steadfast, hard-set, firmly-rooted perspective, but just from the idea of, oh man, how do you even examine this? You know, this is so inherently, you know, our whole existence, <laughs> it's the core of what we do. It's like, can you really have a computer look at its own microprocessor? I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, but... It doesn't have eyeballs? I don't know. Well, it's we're going to get into some real weird touchy-feely stuff here, and if you're willing to stick with me on it, I think we can find some cool stuff to talk about and dig into. Um, so this isn't so much about 
a soul and if human beings have a soul because I don't that's a whole separate issue I want to go into at a different point this is more so this experience that you're having as an aware person does this continue on after death now I've never died so that is difficult for me to answer I would like to if possible continue living for a while before eventually dying I don't want to live forever that um has uh, that I don't know that seems boring that you know unchallenging there's no if there's no finish line there's no point to the race if that makes sense you know this is all somebody please check me on my bullshit here because this is a lot of this is a lot of me just digging in the weeds here I swear to it's 10 a.m and I'm dead sober I swear I have had like four cups of coffee um but this experience of being human um this experience of being aware and awake so I know I'm awake I know I'm here from you know the Descartes I think therefore I am and again, I can't go fully down that rabbit hole right now because this is not necessarily about philosophy. This is about consciousness after death. So I'm I'm going to have to make some presuppositions or kind of like commonality, agreed baseline stuff. So I'm here, I'm aware, I'm awake. Um, does this phenomenon, when my body goes kaput, continue on? Now, <laughs> I've done just about... Uh, seven, eight minutes of preamble just to get to the notion of science still doesn't have a hard answer as to whether or not this is strictly based on the neurochemical processes in the brain or if this is some kind of emergent phenomenon happening as a result, like some, for lack of a better term, almost like a magic trick as a result of all of these things, like not just in the basic terms of software operating on hardware but something even more um ephemeral happening on the next level of consciousness so there's this thing in your skull that is just this big messy lump of kind of bacon fat like material of just goo that has saline and neurotransmitters and synapses and from that we have awareness somehow, you know, input processing from all of our sense organs. But even if you remove those sense organs, there's still something happening within there. You know, blind people and deaf people and people without sense of touch in certain aspects, um, they still have consciousness and awareness. So we can, we can kind of determine from that that if you remove these sensory aspects to it, you are still there as a person. You're still, uh, you know something the fear of uh, a lot of people about um comas or being uh ill or um in some way hospitalized is locked in syndrome where basically you're in there you're awake and you're alive and aware of what's happening but you can't physically move your body or do anything to manifest to show an awareness or that you're there to the outside world and so they treat you as kind of this terry shivo uh thing that is not interacting with the world but uh sidebar if you're at all curious uh <laughs> i was always horrified and amazed by the video from metallica from their uh, their song 
one, uh, which was incorporating elements of the movie Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, and finally, I actually went and read the book when I was like 19 years old. Uh, it's about a war veteran who is blown up and um, he loses his sense of sight and hearing and um, has no mouth except for a feeding tube and he has no arms or legs. He basically is just a um, a person without agency in a hospital and the journey of his mental experience of figuring this out of who he is and how he exists. That was a horrifying but also enthralling uh, book about the consequence of war. So that's... Um, if you're at all interested, happy to talk about that off podcast as well. So please uh, find me online and let me know your thoughts about that or just call me out on being interested in Metallica at a young age. But so this this thing happening within us, this spark, this light, um, it's easy or convenient or understandable for me to think that this is happening within... Uh, the space between my ears and behind my eyes. It certainly feels that way for me, anyway, that there's that that's where my personhood lives or exists, that it's something in there. Um, I don't have experiences that I can recall of <laughs> astral projecting or out-of-body experiences or... Um, something paranormal or supernatural. I, I love asking people about that and to share their stories, but I, I've never had the opportunity to really um, go out somewhere beyond. Um, but for me, it feels like it's in there, and it may be different for other people. So one of the interesting things that I came across in my research for this uh, subject was that the notion of inner speech is not universal which I found fascinating. So the example is, don't think about elephants. Well, right, by, by not trying to think about, by trying to not think about elephants, you inherently have this flickering moment of you're aware of an elephant. Um, if I say the word elephant, you're either picturing the word E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T or you're thinking of the big gray elephant. Um, when you're going about your day doing things, do you talk to yourself in your head? You know, are you conversing with yourself? If you're thinking, oh, I'm really exhausted, I could use another cup of coffee. Are you thinking in that phrase, do I need another cup of coffee? I Again, I incorrectly assumed that was universal when it turns out that's actually, at most, 75% of the population, according to the research I was reading. Um, that's wild to me. Like, it also harkens back to this theory that I've heard about human understanding of consciousness or awareness changed sometime in the last 10,000 years that you can even see this traced in, um, and maybe I think I talked about this on a previous episode too, um, back earlier on um, before the funeral series, that if you look at, I think it's the Odyssey, that the way that the story is told, there is little consideration given to human agency in that people don't make choices and have rational 
actions so much as events unfold. This happens, and then uh, the hero or protagonist does this. This happens, and so as a course, the hero does this. Or to get from A to B, the hero does... Like, so it's not about, well, he was feeling this way, and so wanting to become a better person, he climbed the mountain. You know, it's not about internal agency so much as it is cause and effect with the world beyond, and that there was a theory put out there that is, uh, I, the source of which I can't recall at the moment, but that some of the notions of the divine or communing with God is based on the idea of humans becoming aware enough or coming online enough to realize or understand that the voice that they were hearing in their head was somehow um, communicating with them. That that this experience of being a person, there's an element of dialogue between the existent self and the theoretical or conceptual self. But again, this is where we're getting out into the weeds of this is kind of esoteric stuff to talk about. So so what we take for granted as the human conscious experience, we might not have always had the nuance to talk about it. Uh, we are still working to understand what we are as people. Like, being a teenager wasn't always a thing. You know, that childhood was not looked at as a thing to be cherished that, um, well, first of all, child labor, basically the idea of having a, a, you know, idyllic childhood where you're loved by your parents and go, you go to school and you're raised and you have a you know, generally positive experience to train you to be a good adult was not always the case. Basically, uh, in an agrarian society, you, you make people to have more people so you can uh, work the fields better to have more food assured and pass on your uh, lineage and your story to the next generation that uh, as we progressed into the Industrial Revolution, as people had more leisure time, people were not working as much. So as... <laughs> as children were less a part of the workforce, they had more free time and more resources to... Uh, devote to themselves and advertisers figured out if we try to sell things to young people earlier on they'll have this brand loyalty that they'll chase throughout their um, adult lifetime and basically there was this kind of period of adolescence you know post-childhood pre-adulthood where we started to recognize okay this is not <clears throat> this is not a done person this person's still developing this person's still uh changing from child to adult there's more nuance there than just like uh you know equating adulthood with puberty you know that it's not just this physical process and suddenly oh you're an adult um it's that there is change and growth and nuance there that it's not as white and dark as you know as uh or you know as binary as child and adult that there's subtle degrees of that and we're still learning and we're not done figuring out the human thing you know where this isn't a forever a work in progress as long as we are constrained by these weird meat suits we're gonna try to figure them out so you know this <laughs> see, this is i love this stuff this is so weird i'm having the time of my life talking about this stuff and if you're still listening to me thank you for doing so because this 
I, I can, yeah, anyway. Um, so one of the things that I've been chewing on is that, you know, we're kind of limited by our hard wiring. Um, I've made the analogy in the past of, uh, and it's not an original thought, certainly, that uh, the way we might think about ghosts or aliens or something like that is akin to how ants think of a highway. You know, they can interact with the concrete structure. They know cars are going by. But as far as the significance of all of it, it's it's not something that's conceptually there, like uh, showing a dog a magic trick. It sees, you know, <laughs> saying, is this your card to a golden retriever? The dog sees, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a card. I, I get that much, but, you know... Uh, there are some fun videos online of showing monkeys magic tricks in the zoo, like magicians doing sleight of hand stuff in front of monkeys and watching them lose their minds at like, <gasps> where'd the ball go? It just, it really speaks to something uh, universal in your brain of, oh, they get it too. So like at what degree of delineation are we looking at this here? But evolutionarily speaking, we're we're limited by our hardwiring. You know, the human brain is this particular thing that lest we start tinkering with it or start seeing some bizarre evolutionary leaps in our own lifetime here, we're not going to get beyond a certain point. So we may forever be, for lack of a better term, just the meat suit and that's it. You know, that that this is... Uh, you know, there are there there is a theoretical limit to what we're doing until we start uh, doing more of the machine mind interface. And you know, the singularity is always, oh, it's twenty years away. Uh, we're, supposedly, we'll get there at some point, but uh, our consciousness is not trapped, but apparently localized. Um, in some of the reading and research that I've been doing here. Um, and I'll you know talk about some of the books in later episodes, but uh, the notion was first put to me that uh, consciousness interior versus exterior is it personalized or is it decentralized? You know, are we? It's not. I have a body. I or that I am a body. I have a soul. But maybe it's more so. I am a soul and I have a body, or that it's not, you know, it's not between my ears, that it's something that is more like a radio signal that you can tune into other frequencies or become more nuanced and uh, shifted one direction or another, if that makes sense. Um, and this is not... Uh, not just some hippie woo-woo stuff, which is also very fun to look at for me, but um, the CIA was looking into this stuff. They were looking into oneness and astral projection, and uh, some of the most fun reading that I've had in the last couple of weeks has been some of the declassified documents about Project Gateway, where uh, the government really put time and money to figure out does meditation on certain wavelengths and techniques allow for the consciousness to go somewhere else um this is this i mean this stuff is my wheelhouse man i love chewing on this stuff so something 
something that uh, past guest Alex Lair had mentioned was that young people are unique in their experience as opposed to the calloused (laughs) adults in that they are closer to have more recently been non-existent in the corporeal sense than, uh, you know, a 30-something in a career in, uh, you know, in a a balanced adulthood would count as their existence that we're not, uh, that I'm farther from death in one direction than I've ever been before, whereas young people are not, you know, that people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what happens when I die if I don't remember what it was like before I was born. I'm not going to remember what it was like when I died. And I can certainly see where that argument is coming from, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the case that we don't remember what it was like before we were born, but that memories don't seem to form and stick in the same way until a certain point in our childhood. You know, I've talked with my own parents about what their earliest memories are. I I remember as far back as being two, I think. Uh, My mom at one point had shared with me she remembered lying in her crib and seeing the uh, leaves making patterns on the ceilings from the window outside. So she remembers being young enough to be in a crib. I've got a friend who uh, had a younger brother who, you know, whether it's a coached answer or it was, you know, played up, but, you know, what little kid wants to make this joke, but... um, supposedly remembered being in utero and this you know this is not an isolated case there are tales of kids who do remember uh being pre-born so what if the consciousness is not um i mean women who've given birth they (laughs) they are strong enough to suffer through the process and uh come out the other side oh god no pun intended i'm sorry but the further you get from such an experience, the fuzzier the memories become as like this evolutionary adaptive tactic to make sure that you are not uh, forever um, you know, scared off from having another child so that you... I guess the long roundabout point I'm making is what if, what if it's not a case of we don't remember before we were born, but that our brains are hardwired a certain way that we don't retain the memories of any kind of conscious existence until we start to kind of kick online until, you know, a year or two years old. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a good brain person. I'm just here on a podcast talking about it. If you would like to call me out on my dumb dumbness, write in. But what I do find interesting is that there is almost a smugness in the assumption of I think it's just dead, over, that's it. Um, Looking at a lot of crowdsourced information on what do you think happens when we die, you know, a question that I ask everybody on this podcast, a lot of, uh, well, frankly, guests on this podcast, and then a lot of people that I've looked at online as well say just, it's, and myself too, I have said this for years, and now I'm finally starting to question my own uh, smug concreteness of my own answers. Um, that it's just dead over. That's it. That it's just uh, the neurochemical process stops in your head and that once you die, that's the end of it and your brain is just done. You are no more. And the confidence with 
which people seem to bandy that idea about is really interesting when you start seeing it more and more and kind of removed from the passing in a conversation at which it happens. Like if you really pause to kind of say, well, wait, let's talk about that. What? Wh- why do you say that? What are you basing that on? You're basing that on between you know, your experience from the age of two until now, because that's not a universal experience. We need to question this. And it's, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm calling my own stuff out here because I can look back and say, yeah, oh, I definitely went through. So if you have, <laughs> if you haven't gone back and listened to other episodes, I was raised in a Lutheran household and went to a lot of Catholic schooling growing up. And, you know, so I've had a, a moderate to um, <laughs> generous exposure to Christianity. And I certainly dug into other religious thought as well, because I was curious about it. Um, I also went through a very, uh, you know, of course, it's the trite, just adamant atheist phase of uh, late teen into early adulthood of just, I think we all, nothing, God's a joke, man. It doesn't like, all of that just stereotypical angsty young person crap that just, I've gotten away from that as I've just chilled out a little bit and, you know, seen a decade more. Um, But it's, it's it's like this comforting notion of just, oh, yeah, if you just flick the light switch off, everything turns off and that's it. There's no grand moral consequence for actions or, you know, you don't have to worry about what happens afterwards. I mean, yeah, on a certain level, you don't have to worry because all we know is that it's a change. It's at the least something happens, meaning, you know, we shut off or something changes and we continue to experience in some other way, we don't know. Uh, The people that have come back to tell us that something does happen, we're really hesitant to believe them. So there is um, the NDERF, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, um, that I found online that basically just compiles people's near-death experiences where uh, they die and they come back and they talk about it. Uh, I've had uh, past and hopefully future guests on this podcast who have done so as well, and I don't want to poo-poo that at all. You know, it's how how do you evaluate somebody's personal subjective experience? You know, it's it, it just it you almost have to kind of compartmentalize it in order to well for me anyway to go about functioning about your daily life. But this is the kind of stuff that I'm just fascinated by, not in a not in a dangerous way or, you know, self-harming way. I want to be very clear that I am very intent on living as long as possible to the fullest capable quality of life that I can. But that is the ultimate mystery. That is the, that is the big question is what happens beyond this? And, you know, the near-death experience, uh, the N-D-E-R-F, <laughs> Enderf, um, for me, it became kind of there was a certain sameness almost to some of the um there's definitely commonality among the the images and experiences described it's not necessarily as simple as saying well i think it it looks like everybody's having this kind of experience but it's it was interesting for me to see how much religious 
um, imagery that there was, and I can't help but wonder how much of that is preconception based on, you know, a lifetime of religious background. So that's, I need to be able to dig in to kind of sample selections to see, was this, there's so much religious iconography and background noise that you just get through osmosis in your existence as a human, you know, having a completely a religious culture is a rare thing. So I need to, uh, I need to dig into it, but it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting place to start digging. I will say that, um, Yeah, this is just, this is heavy stuff, and I, I really, <laughs> I love, I love chewing on these ideas, and it kind of kicks back to when I first was starting this podcast and talking with somebody about, yeah, the nuts and bolts of building a website, and uh, how do you work social media from this angle, and what do you do, and the person had asked me, well, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of dead over, right, like, or, you know, it's, isn't death kind of a clearly defined thing? And I said, well, yeah, to a certain level it is, but, you know, that uh, I started talking about the examples of premature burial or, you know, instances of coma or uh, drugging or poisoning where somebody appears to be dead and they wouldn't be in history and then they would come back to life and you would have the... uh, the bell in the cemetery where you're able to ring, just let the... uh, groundskeeper know that you're still alive in there that death is not just well the heart stops and that's it that there is nuance to it and that the consciousness might persist beyond uh your heart stopping and there was actually a news piece on cbs that i came across with dr sam parnia uh, who was talking about his research into how the consciousness persists after death looking at it's not just the heart stopping or the brain ceasing to have blood and oxygen or you know oxygenated blood pumped into it that you know to after a certain point yes there's brain damage and it becomes increasingly difficult to a matter of degrees to bring a person back from beyond death and uh sidebar there is an incredibly fascinating episode of the what if podcast uh shout out to ryan and spencer i love your show uh fellow minnesotans making a great podcast about just all of the weirdness and absurdity in the world they did a recent episode about reviving or reanimating the dead, and it just was an absolute horror story of cases of things that I was both familiar with and things that I hadn't hit on before, and I was really impressed by some of the nuance that they brought to it as well because it it's not just the mechanics of it. It's not just the heart pumping. It's not just the lungs working that there is theoretically some kind of spark of life is that awareness back like if you i mean without getting too gnarly about it on a podcast called you're dead too there have been experiments done in the last century where doctors or scientists would try to basically mock up the equivalence of life where you know you have something to pump the heart you have something to work the lungs you have something to uh push reoxygenated blood throughout the body you have this ability to basically mimic all of the signs of life only to eventually bring a person back to life to like kind of like when you're rolling a car down a hill and then you pop the clutch and turn the engine over basically that something like that would happen with the dead 
is that actually bringing a person back or is that just turning lights on and nobody's home? And so that's the nuance that we're talking about here. Um, and that's what I keep talking about with meat puppets that were just these weird perverse spacesuits of, you know, this conscious experience based around goo. You know, that there's, we've got these bodies and yeah, this is, <laughs> this is my bread and butter, this, this ambiguity. I love this. I love this. And uh, I think it's, it's only helpful the fact that it's, you know, 1045 in the morning at this point, And I'm again, dead sober, highly caffeinated, uh, and a little physically tired from having been up shoveling because this is stuff that just really, once I get going on it, I'm like a dog with a bone and I don't want to let it go. Uh, so I want to keep digging into this. I want to find out more. I want to, uh, explore more of this. What is consciousness? What happens when we die? Because we don't know. Obviously, right, Don, John, that's the point. We don't know. Uh, but there are tales of it. There is anecdotal evidence. There are reports of uh, you know, decentralization of the conscious experience that, you know, I don't want to spoil Brian's whole experience and story that he was kind enough to share, but part of it involves him seeing himself beyond himself, you know, being up above. Uh, Brenda Hartman also shared some amazing insight into her experience, and it's, it's, maybe it's inherently subjective, and there's no way to know. I don't know, but that's what I'm fascinated to look into this for. So, I don't, I don't know, I just, I don't think it's a party trick, you know? I don't think it's just this, there's a, I don't know. If there's a sacred and there's a profane, I think this this floats more towards the sacred side than the profane. I don't think this is just biological. I think something's happening, but I don't know based on what, you know? I don't want to just, like, that was my frustration in, you know, some of my college lectures was that it just felt like every different philosophical mindset that we were looking at as far as the experience of being human, that it would be everything that was almost in a chronological sense, everything that we were looking at would displace the previous one and assert this new elegant way of explaining human experience. And I was really afraid every class that would end up just being, and then the final answer was Christianity. Here we are, everybody at a Catholic university. And um, there was a certain element of that, but not, uh, thankfully, too much. But again, um, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So I'm going to wrap things up here for now, but I am so thrilled to be going down this rabbit hole. I loved doing a deep dive on funerals. I learned so much, and I certainly have more to learn. That was just a very Americanized version of it, but this experience of being a human and looking at consciousness after death and, frankly, what is consciousness, uh, this is some real... This is the heavy stuff that I love digging into. So... Stick with me. Like I said, this is just part one. I don't know how long this is going to go on. And maybe I see a massive drop-off in reader or listenership. Readership, dummy. Uh, listenership, audience. Maybe I scare everybody off by being too fractured and out there. And uh, maybe this is not death-centric enough. But frankly, looking what happens at, you know, 
the delineation point of alive, not alive, where does this experience go? Uh, stick with me. We'll try to find out. Um, and again, not in a dangerous way. No, I mean in an exploratory way, in a way of, you know, research and figuring this out, not in a um, Jonestown way. Good Lord. Okay. On that happy note, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it as always. I hope it goes well for you and I hope travel goes well if you're traveling. Otherwise, I will uh, see you on the other side. (laughs) 